following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Uh, in the meantime, while you're looking that up, I trust you all had a Merry Christmas. Uh, we have actually not really had Christmas yet. Uh, don't feel sorry for us or anything. We kind of did. But with Matt and Anna away, they're out in Michigan at Matt's family's uh, house for the holidays, for Christmas and all that. They actually come back tomorrow. Uh, so we kind of were winging it a little bit. We didn't want to, uh, you know, have our big Christmas and then have them come back and we can sit and stare at them while they open up their gifts. So we're doing that all together on Saturday uh, when they come back, which will actually be the 11th day of Christmas. So we're kind of doing that whole thing this year. So, but in the meantime, we didn't want to be bored either and just staring at each other uh, in sadness on Christmas morning. So we kind of created this used Christmas thing, which I think is going to quickly grow into a Sweeney tradition because uh, we had a blast. So we didn't really know what this was going to look like, but it turned out what we did was we kind of looked around the house and found things that we already had uh, that we could re-gift to somebody or we could make something or spend a very, very minimal amount of money. And so we got some kind of creative things out of that. So uh, Miriam and Ben found a good deal on Whoppers, which just happens to be one of my favorite candies. And so I got eight boxes of Whoppers which I now have seven boxes of Whoppers. Uh, but anyway, and then, uh, so Miriam also got her grandmother uh, the devotional My Utmost for His Highest, which is one of our favorites, and it came pre-highlighted. <clears throat> so she gave that to her, and she's like, oh, you must think I really need some help in these areas or something. So anyway, we had a lot of really great laughs and stuff. Ben uh, picked up the spirit of it. In the middle, we were kind of figuring out what this was going to look like as it unfolded. So he grabbed Wendy's cell phone and dropped it in a bag and handed it to her and said, hey, it already comes with a prepaid plan and everything. So you're all, you're all set there. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. But Happy New Year to everyone, too. I'm honored to kind of close out 2018 by being able to preach with you this morning. Uh, we're a little out of the ordinary today because we have everybody together in the one service and all the kids. And I am super excited uh, to have all the kids here. And so I hope you'll uh, be able to pay attention because I'm going to be telling a story from the Old Testament. And I can't wait to tell you about this really wonderful psalm that we have and the story that led up to the writing of this psalm. So uh, we all need to learn to trust God at all times and to do what's right. And even the good guy in this story ends up telling a couple of lies. And he learns through this that, that lying is wrong. And we also learn that even though he does some things wrong, that God still mercifully deals very kindly with him. And so let's read from Psalm 34, and then I'll pray. And so if you look in your Bible, too, it starts off with a little description, a little title at the top. And I'm going to read that as well. It's called, uh, so the psalm is, Of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. So, hmm, wonder what that's all about. So let's read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boasts in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for bringing it to us and for inspiring David to write it so that we can understand it. Now, we ask that you give us your spirit today so that I might uh, communicate um, quickly and clearly and succinctly all that you have for us. And Lord, that we all might have ears to hear and hearts to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we're going today. I'm going to give a brief background of Israel's history that leads up to this point, and then uh, we're going to talk about the particular episode that happens, which happens to be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, that inspired David to write this psalm. It's quite interesting. And then we'll walk through the psalm itself, and we're going to draw out four uh, key points, key themes out of that, and then we'll close with some personal and some corporate uh, application for us. So in order to best understand why David wrote this psalm, it's really helpful for us to go back a little further, uh, just so we can understand this, and, and especially since the story itself is not terribly familiar to many of us. So let's start with Moses. So do you guys remember Moses? He's the guy with the staff, right, who took the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt and led them out into the wilderness, where they promptly disobeyed God for the next 40 years and wandered around with no place to go, uh, with the intent that they would make it to the promised land. And then Moses dies, and, and up comes Joshua, the next leader. He's, he's the guy that kind of took over leadership for Moses. And Joshua was able to finally lead them and settle them into the promised land. Well, unlike all the other nations around them, Israel had no earthly king. They were led by judges. These were leaders who were picked specifically to hear directly from God and to exercise justice and promote mercy. So really, God was their king and he exercised his kingship through the judges. However, some of these judges were good rulers, and some of them not so good rulers. Uh, in fact, at the end of the book of Judges, it said that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they all kind of basically made up their own rules, and this was disastrous for Israel. Well, Samuel was the last of these judges, and so we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 21. That's the Samuel we're talking about. And so he was the last of these judges, and at the time, the Israelites demanded to be like all the other nations around them. They didn't want to be exceptional, and they didn't want to be led by God anymore. Um, and so uh, they wanted to be led by an earthly king. And God assured Samuel that they were not rejecting him. It was God himself, their heavenly king, that they were rejecting. So God gave them what they wanted. He gave them an earthly, foolish, greedy king who would fail to protect them and would abuse and use them. That king was Saul, a man who was good-looking, tall. He was stately-looking, pretty studly-looking guy. But inside his heart, he was full of sin. He also did what was right in his own eyes. He was not inclined to seek after God. 
And have you ever been around people who just did what they thought was right, even though you knew what they were doing was really bad? This is not good. It's no fun. And yet, this is what everyone, including King Saul, was doing at the time. So now there was also this other group of people who lived near Israel, and uh, they would always like to pick fights with the Israelites and stuff, so they were always going to battle with one another, right? These were the Philistines. And during one particular battle against the Philistines, Saul proved one last time that God could not trust him, and so God rejected him as king. The Bible doesn't really tell us why, but for some reason, God kept Saul as the official king of Israel for several more years. But in the meantime, he anointed a fierce and joyful warrior who loved God and already proved his devotion. Anointed, by the way, just means that God chose him and he set him aside for his purposes. So God had Samuel anoint David, son of Jesse, an unknown shepherd who quietly and faithfully tended his flocks. Now, by God's plan, David became the head of Saul's bodyguards. Pretty cool job. And Saul liked him a lot until one day when David defeated the Philistines defeated a whole bunch of Philistines, including Goliath. And we all know that story. After that, a saying went around Israel. Saul has, um, <clears throat> Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, as you can imagine, this kind of bothered Saul a lot. He didn't like this, and he became jealous of David. In fact, it is written, and Saul eyed David from that day on. So he didn't trust David anymore. And Saul tried a few times to kill David, and eventually David ran away because Saul was so angry. This brings us to the main story today. 1 Samuel 21, after learning that Saul, no kidding, really wanted to kill David to preserve his kingdom, David ran off quickly to the town of Nob. It was this little town nearby where the tabernacle was. Now, the tabernacle was just this really big tent where God happened to live, right? And so they were carrying this tent around with them, and now that they'd settled in the promised land, Nob was one of the places where that tent was kept. And the, uh, the priests would minister there at the tent uh, in accordance with the instructions that God had given them. And it was a very special place. And so, you know, David loved the tabernacle, so that's where he ran uh, in fear of his life from, from Saul. And David ran so quickly that he only had a handful of men with him and no food or weapons. So he asked Ahimelech, the priest, for some help. However, he didn't just ask for help. For some reason, again, not really made clear in Scripture, David did not tell Ahimelech the whole truth. He declared that the king had sent him on an urgent matter, which he couldn't tell anyone about. Why did he do this? As I said, the scripture doesn't really say why, but we might consider a couple of theories. Uh, You know, maybe he was just in a panic and it was the first thing he thought of. He didn't really think about what he might have to explain to Ahimelech. Or maybe he really thought it through and he decided he didn't want to put Ahimelech at risk by telling him about Saul's state of mind so that Saul would come and be angry with Ahimelech too. We really don't know. But whatever the reason, he then asked Ahimelech for some bread because he was hungry. But the only bread the priest had, that Ahimelech had, was the uh, holy bread that was put in the tabernacle and set aside as a sacrifice to God, as an offering to him. And by law, the only one allowed to eat this bread were the priests themselves. And this bread was replaced every day. There was fresh bread made, and it was put on the altar, and then they would take the old bread off, and the priests could eat that, but it was only the priests. But Ahimelech took mercy on David, and he decided to, uh, to give it to him for his small uh, band of men that were with him. 
And it's interesting, too, that in Luke chapter 6, Jesus actually refers to this episode when he's having a conversation with the Pharisees about uh, their notions of the Sabbath and the idea that God's laws are trumped by mercy with people because that's really God's ultimate law. One of God's ultimate laws is to do good to one another and to have mercy on one another. And so some of these other laws are not as important as that. And so Ahimelech effectively broke that law by being merciful to David, which was a kind thing to do. In addition to that bread, David asks Ahimelech if there are any weapons he might have around that he could take with him, again, only telling a half-truth. He claimed that the king had sent him in such haste, which is partly true in the sense that David ran away quickly from him, but also false because he again claimed that he was on the king's business. At any rate, Ahimelech had been keeping the sword that David took from Goliath years before when he killed him. And for whatever reason, Ahimelech still had that sword. And if you remember, David was a little teenager then, right? And this sword was pretty big. So David probably didn't want to be carrying that thing around. Wasn't going to do him much good uh, tending sheep. So anyway, uh, so, so uh, Ahimelech gives him that sword. And then lastly, after that, David takes off from Ahimelech. He gets out of there and he heads for Gath. Well, where is Gath? That's an interesting thing. So th this, this is a little bit like one of us fleeing the United States and going to Iran or Saudi Arabia to seek refuge from our government. Kind of weird, okay? Because the Philistines, uh, or Gath, is in Philistine country. These are their enemies. So if you remember your story from David and Goliath, you also remember that Gath just happened to be Goliath's hometown. So I'm not really sure what David's trying to accomplish here by going to the hometown of the giant he slew, which, by the way, precipitated the absolute defeat of the Philistine army. I'm thinking that David was probably not going to win any popularity contests here uh, in Gath, but apparently he thought it was safer there than in Israel, where Saul could easily track him down. Maybe he just figured, well, Saul can't get me here. I'll take my chances with these guys. Don't really know. At any rate, he gets to Gath, and he goes to see the king of Gath, whose name was Achish. Bless you. I wonder if he had Goliath's giant sword strapped to his side when he showed up. But for some reason, Achish's advisors immediately recognized this as David. In fact, they kind of cited that song about David's ten thousands of Philistines that he slew. They cite that song to Achish, and so David suddenly realizes he's in a pretty bad situation. He is in trouble. Uh, you know, would Achish order him killed? Would he take him captive? Would he uh, make him a slave? Would he sell him off somewhere else? Don't know. Would he do all of the above? What would you do? Well, since David had intentionally deceived his own priest, it wasn't a big reach for him to deceive an uncircumcised Philistine king, right? And so that's what he did. He pretended to be out of his mind, acting insane. He made marks on the gates and was drooling down his beard. Looks kind of crazy to me. And well, Achish must have bought it. He must have thought so too, because he mocked him and sent him away, perceiving him to no longer really be a credible threat to the Philistines. And there's kind of a classic line, and one of the things I love about the Bible is they don't hide these funny little remarks and stuff like that that people make. And so, you know, typical is of a king here, Achish says, do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman before me? Like, get this dude out of here, all right? So anyway, he kind of makes fun of his own guys there at the, in, the, in the process. So was David cunning enough in his deceit of Achish to get away with this ruse and escape death? Or... Was God kind and merciful in moving Achish's heart to let David go? Well, this brings us to Psalm 34. It's so important for us to realize that the Psalms are real poems written by real people, experiencing real emotions in real circumstances, 
and pointing us to a real God. Let's look through Psalm 34. Again, I talked about the title earlier. The title tells us that David wrote this, and it was inspired by this event with King Achish. This was a severe trial when David's life was very much in danger, and the outcome uncertain. It must certainly have left a lasting, even lifelong impression on him. So you see how it says in here of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out. Well, this seems to kind of contradict the story a little bit. I mean, haven't we been saying all along about King Achish? Who's this Abimelech? Isn't Abimelech the priest that gave him the bread and the sword? Well, no. There's a translation issue going on here that seems to confuse us a little bit. The priest's name is Ahimelech, not Abimelech. Could that have gotten any closer? I mean, really. Abimelech is a royal title for a Philistine king, kind of like we would say the president or his majesty or something like that. So it was really a title. The king's name is Achish, but David, for whatever reason, uses his title here instead of his name. Indeed, it was Abimelech, the king, who sent David away when David was acting like he was insane. And it was Ahimelech who gave him the bread and the sword. Does that make sense? All right, good. Hopefully. Okay, so finally, you'll notice that even though the title refers back to this interaction, interaction between David and King Achish, the body of Psalm 34 makes no reference to it. That's kind of the only thing that really ties us back, that gives us a clue that this actually talks about this episode in his life. But it's clear still that David is full of praise for Yahweh, for his faithful protection. And he uses this character trait of God to inspire, inspire devotion in his own people. David's life was surely in grave danger, and God surely delivered him out of it. So this psalm is set up into four main themes, and we'll walk through these. So uh, verses 1 through 7, are the, the theme here is that of thanksgiving and praise to God for God's goodness uh, for, um, as part of David's experiences. So I'm going to read through, and, and I'm going to change it. You'll notice that uh, in your Bible it says, the Lord. Whenever it talks about the Lord, and Lord is all in capitals, usually it's a capital L and then smaller capital O-R-D in that. That's done to, uh, as, to distinguish Yahweh. Because in, in Hebrew, uh, they would not say Yahweh. They certainly wouldn't write it down. You could say Yahweh, but they wouldn't write it down. They had to write it down in a special way. So this just denotes that. But I happen to love hearing Yahweh. I think it personalizes who God is. It's certainly who the Jews knew him as. And so I'm going to read it that way. Wherever it says the Lord, I'm just going to read Yahweh. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be, my, be in my mouth. And by the way, as you listen to these first three verses, it makes me think of, this is a huge sigh of relief. We don't really know when David wrote this psalm. He might have written it immediately after this happened, uh, when he's on his, after he left Gath to go on to the next place or something, or it may have been many years later. We just don't know. But these first three verses in particular just sound like a big sigh of relief to me. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. What a great little introduction of, of praise to him. And then he goes on to say, I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. What are those fears that he would delivered him from? Well, it was the fear. Remember, he was, first of all, he was on the run from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. That's kind of scary. And it was scary enough that he actually went to his enemies to seek protection there. Also pretty scary. And then when he gets there, he realizes, oh, these guys probably don't like me a whole lot either. And so, you know, he's worried about being enslaved or taken away or killed, right? God delivered him, Yahweh, from all of his fears. Verse 5 says, those who look to him, to Yahweh, are radiant. 
and their faces shall never be ashamed. This word radiant is, is a great word. It actually uh, means some other things. It's from a, the Hebrew word nawar, which is a root word, which means to sparkle or to be cheerful or to flow as the sheen of a running river. So if you've ever been to like the Shenandoah River or even like the James River or even some of the little canals that we have here when the water's actually flowing and, and moving out, it gets kind of that nice little sparkly summertime sheen on it or whatever. That's kind of the idea that this invokes, that our faces are like who trust in God, who really trust in him and rest in him. This poor man cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. What an awesome way to praise and give thanks to God who, even though he was in all this trouble, he looks back and he knows that God delivered him. Verses 8 through 10 uh, now turns to David speaking to his people and encouraging them to seek after and to trust in God. He says, Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. So again, encouraging us all to trust him and to seek him. And then verses 11 through 14, he turns to more of an exhortation, again speaking to the people, but exhorting them, take heed of your sin. Be mindful of that. Don't sin. Do what's right to God and to man. He says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? This is a great rhetorical question. He's kind of asking, you know, hey, who doesn't want to live a long time? And then as if to answer it, in the next verse, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What a beautiful admonition to us. Wait just a minute. David's writing this. Isn't he the guy that just lied to the priest? Isn't he the guy that just deceived King, uh, King Achish? What the heck is he doing telling us to keep our lips from speaking deceit? Well, could it be that, again, this is written maybe years later, but maybe soon after, he came to realize that what he did was wrong. And he's writing now the truth. This is what you should do. Don't do what I actually did. That was foolish. You know, one of the marks of David's life was that oftentimes, even when he was, uh, had his momentary setbacks, and he had some bigger ones than this later on in his life, David was, not, was far from a perfect person, right? But he was always quick to run back to Yahweh in faith and repentance because he knew the gospel. He knew that God was a merciful God. And so he tells us here to turn away from good and seek peace and pursue it. And then finally, this last portion here, verses 15 through 22, he says, the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. In this passage, the fourth main theme is he's going to be drawing a distinction between the righteous and the wicked and how God treats each of them. He's going to draw this kind of a fine line here and make it obvious to us. So I'm going to read the verses that talk about the righteous and what people like us, because we're righteous in him because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We're not righteous because we're such good people. We're righteous because he says it's so. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 17, he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them. Yahweh hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. And then verse 22, Yahweh redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is wonderful news. Let's contrast that, though, with what he says about the wicked. 
In verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. I don't want to be on that side of God. Verse 21, he says, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Again, not the side of God you want to be on. And then finally, I want to draw a distinction between verses 19 and 21. Both talk about this word. You'll see the word afflictions in there. We all face afflictions, whether we're righteous or unrighteous, because it's just part of the world that we live in. We live in a sin-sick, broken world that will one day be made right. But for now, we suffer the consequences of sin around us. So he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Any of the righteous in here experiencing afflictions lately? But the Lord delivers him out of them all. But in verse 21, it says, affliction will slay the wicked. So they will not receive God's protection from these things. So again, our four main themes, thanksgiving, seeking after and trusting in God, taking heed of our sin and doing right, and then understanding God's dealings with people who are righteous and who are unrighteous. And throughout Psalm 34, we're reminded of the gospel. God loves his people, and he reaches out to those who take refuge in him. And we do not deserve this. In fact, we deserve quite the opposite. Yet his steadfast love is toward those on whom he has set his affections, meaning us. What wonderful news. We all feel the weight of our own difficulties and challenges. Some are absolutely crushing, soul-sucking, and never seem to end. For some of us, 2018 was a most challenging year, facing chronic, severe sickness, family difficulties, even treachery or betrayal, separation, joblessness, broken relationships, deep disappointment, and sometimes just the results of the sin we got ourselves into. And similarly, we feel the weight of David's challenges. Well, this psalm tells us to stay in the fight. We really can trust God. He really does love us. David, too, faced crushing family difficulties. Saul was not only the king, Saul was his father-in-law. His son Jonathan was a precious friend, and he had to leave him him behind, too, along with his wife, who was Jonathan's sister. Remember, David married into this family. He had to seek the protection of his enemy from his own father-in-law, and he couldn't go back to his father Jesse, either, for fear of putting him and his brothers in danger. He was constantly on the rung. His life stunk, and yet he gave thanks to his God. So what are a couple of applications that we can take from this? To implement in our daily walk, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this process of sanctification? Well, first of all, remind yourself of these truths. How? Stay grounded in God's word, which is the primary means of telling us who he is, what he's like, and how he loves us. Remind yourself when life is good that God is good. So you can remind yourself of this when things are at their darkest. Don't forget in the dark what you know in the light. Remember, it's a spiritual battle, not a battle against flesh and blood. Part of that spiritual battle is to give him thanks and praise for all things. Remember James's exhortation to count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. And do not be anxious about anything. But in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And give thanks in all circumstances. And then the second thing we can do is remind one another of these truths. In your counsel to one another, in your community groups, in your families, uh, when you disciple one another individually, keep your advice based on God's word and not just on nice-sounding platitudes. Only God's word has power. 
Remember, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I took us through a brief background of Israel's larger story to get us to the point of what happened in 1 Samuel 21. And in 1 Samuel 21, we looked at what it was that precipitated, that that inspired David to write this psalm. And then we actually looked at the psalm itself, and we drew out four major themes. Themes of thanksgiving and praise, of encouragement to trust God, exhortation to obey him and to flee sin and to cling to God. And then finally, we contrasted God's dealings with the righteous with the unrighteous. And then we talked about some personal and corporate application. Don't forget in the dark what you know in the light. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word, which tells us who you are, what you're like, and how you love us. You are good when you give and when you take away, when the sun shines upon us and when night gathers over us. You have loved us before the foundation of the world, and in love you redeemed us. Your goodness has been with us during another year, leading us through a twisting wilderness, in retreat, helping us to advance, when beaten back, making sure headway. Your goodness will be with us in the year ahead. In the light of this truth, we hoist sail and pull up anchor with you as the blessed pilot of our future, as of our past. As with David, only glorify yourself in us, whether in comfort or trial, as chosen vessels prepared for your use. In Jesus' name, amen.